You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 194, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, translated by Johanna Kallis, Twelve Lectures. This is Lecture 9, given in Dornach on the 12th of December, 1919. Since our trip has been delayed by a few days, I am able to speak to you here today, tomorrow, and the next day. I am especially pleased about this because a number of friends have arrived from England to whom I shall now be able to speak before leaving. These friends will have noticed that the building of the Gertianum has made some headway even in difficult times. Thus far, though, it has not been possible to complete the building work and there is as yet no certainty as to when this will be. Nevertheless, what has been completed hitherto will show you what the spiritual background is out of which this building has grown and how it is bound up with the spiritual movement represented here. So, since it is possible to speak to a larger gathering of our English friends after quite a long interval, I'm sure you will agree with my basing our considerations today on the building itself. In the next two days it will then be possible, in connection with what can be said about the building itself, to add certain points which I feel sure it will be important to mention at the present time. Since at least the idea of our building is now becoming visible, anyone looking at it will notice the special way in which it is linked with our spiritual movement, while also gaining an impression perhaps especially from this building in the way it represents our spiritual movement, as to what the nature of our movement is intended to be. Consider the situation of any sectarian movement, however widespread, finding it necessary to build a house like this for its gatherings. What would have brought this about? Well, depending on the requirements of the society or association, it would have been built on a larger or smaller scale in one architectural style or another, and you would have found inside it, in one or another emblematic sign, an indication of what was going to be taught or presented within it. None of this, you will have noticed, has been applicable to this Gertianum building. This building is not intended to be merely for the external use of the anthroposophical movement or the anthroposophical society. As it stands before you, in all its detail, it has been born out of what our movement intends to give to the world with regard to the spirit. It would not have been sufficient for this movement to erect a building in some random architectural style. When the moment came when it was possible to discuss building a house of our own, this movement felt the urge to find a style 
which would emerge from the foundations of our spiritual science, a style which would express in every detail the spiritual substance flowing through our movement. It would have been unthinkable to have a house built arbitrarily in any arbitrary style for our movement. This should enable anyone to infer immediately how far this movement is removed from any sectarian or similar movement, however widespread it might be. We needed not only to build a house, but also to find an architectural style, which expressed in every detail all that is spoken by our anthroposophical spiritual science in every word and in every sentence. Indeed, I am convinced that when someone is able to enter sufficiently into what can truly be sensed in the form of this building, please note that I have said sensed, not idly fancied, it will also be possible for that person to discover in these forms, to read in these forms, whatever is also expressed here in words. This is no external matter. It is something which is inwardly bound up with the whole intention of this spiritual movement, a movement quite different from those spiritual movements which have gradually been emerging in human life since the beginning of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period, or, we could say, since the middle of the fifteenth century. This is founded on the conviction that in the present time it is necessary to place something into human evolution which is different from what has hitherto been placed into human evolution since the middle of the fifteenth century. All the developments among civilized humanity over the past four to five centuries seem to me to have one specific characteristic in common, which is that external life in the widest sense has become heavily mechanized to the extent of becoming a kingdom in its own right. It forms a kingdom in its own right, which is monopolized by those who consider themselves to be practitioners of living. And in addition to this external mode of living, which has spread over all areas of so-called practical life, there is also an amalgam of spiritual views, worldviews or philosophies or whatever you want to call them, which have over the years, but especially over the last three to four centuries, become estranged from life. In the feelings and sensations they give to human beings, they hover, as it were, above real practical life. The difference between these two streams has become so blatant that one cannot help saying, in our present age a time has arrived when these two streams are incapable of understanding one another, or perhaps one should say that they can no longer find any points of contact through which they might be able to have any effect on one another. We manage our factories, we set our trains on their railway lines, and we send our steamships across the oceans. We let our telegraphs and telephones come into play. And we do all this by allowing the mechanisms of life to run automatically and completely take us over. And side by side with this we preach. We preach a great deal. The ancient ecclesiastical denominations, 
preach in the churches, the politicians preach in the parliaments, the various aspirations preach on all kinds of subjects, about the demands of the proletariat, about the demands of women. Such a great amount of preaching goes on. And the content of this preaching is surely something which is clearly desired in humanity's present state of consciousness. And yet were we to ask where we can find the bridge between what we preach and what our external life is bringing about all around us, we would, if we were honest with ourselves, be unable to find a satisfactory answer on the basis of the way our times are going. I mention the following phenomenon simply because it is the best example of what I have been describing. As you know, in addition to all the other opportunities we have today, which allow us to preach, a good number of secret societies also exist. Among these, let us examine the ordinary lodges of Freemasonry, including those which have the highest and the lowest degrees. In these lodges we find symbols, triangle, circle, set square, and compasses, and others. We even find in this context a much-used phrase, the master builder of all worlds. What is all this? Well, when we go back to the 9th, 10th, 11th century and look at the civilized world in which all those secret societies, those lodges of Freemasons, spread out like a froth across civilization, we find that all those instruments which nowadays are laid as symbols upon the altars of those lodges were once tools of the trade for the building of houses and churches. There were set squares, there were circles, I mean compasses, there were water levels, plumb lines. All these things were put to use in ordinary external life. In the lodges of Freemasonry, talks are now given with reference to these things, which no longer have any connection with everyday life. Talks about all kinds of beautiful matters, which, however beautiful they may be, are completely foreign to ordinary life and ordinary practicalities. Ideas have come into being, thought constructs which have no practical relevance whatever for daily life. We have gradually arrived at a situation in which people go to work from Monday to Saturday and then listen to sermons on Sunday. These two things have nothing to do with one another. And in preaching we frequently refer to those things which in bygone times had a lively connection with external life as symbols of what is beautiful, what is true, even of what is virtuous. Yet these things are out of touch with everyday life. We have even come to believe that the more out of touch with everyday life our sermons are, the greater is their capacity to raise us up to spiritual heights. The everyday profane world has become something inferior. We see how today all kinds of demands emerging from the depths of the human being are not properly comprehended for what they are. What, often, is the connection between those sermons put forth in grand houses about how virtuous we all are, how we all love others regardless of race, 
nation, color? What is the connection between such sermons and what really happens, what we really foster, by cutting out our coupons and letting ourselves be paid pensions by the banks in order to ensure the safe continuation of our external lives on the basis of principles which have absolutely nothing to do with what those virtuous individuals talk of in their elegant apartments. We found, for example, theosophical societies in which everyone talks of brotherliness. Yet we do not have the least influence over what happens when we cut out our coupons. By cutting out those coupons, we set off a whole sequence of economic matters. Our life has fragmented into these two entirely separate streams. For example, and this is no theoretical example but one from life, it can happen and has indeed happened that a lady approached me saying, I've been asked for a contribution intended to assist people, but they drink alcohol. Surely as a theosophist I cannot agree to this. That is what she said. All I could say in reply was, Well, you hold stocks and shares. How many breweries, do you imagine, are supported by your assets? With regard to what is important, it is not a matter on the one hand of preaching in a way which voluptuously gratifies our soul, while on the other hand adopting an attitude to life based on a way of living which has come down to us over the past three to four hundred years. Few people have any inclination to enter thoroughly into this fundamental problem of our time. Why is this? It is because this dualism has entered into our life, most strongly during the course of the last three to four centuries, a dualism between external life and our so-called spiritual strivings. When people today speak of spiritual striving, they are on the whole referring to something entirely abstract, something unworldly, and not to something capable of being involved in everyday life. The question, the problem this points to, will have to be tackled at its very roots. If we here on this hill have been acting in accordance with the endeavors of the past three to four centuries, we might very well have sought the services of any architect, of some famous architect, in order to put up a beautiful building in whatever style of architecture we might have chosen. But this could never have been what we would have done. In that case, we would have entered this building, we would have been surrounded by everything beautiful belonging to some style or other, and we would have uttered words in keeping with the building, just like all those beautiful sermons spoken in keeping with the external lifestyle chosen by people nowadays. Such a thing was not possible. For this is not what is meant by the spiritual science oriented in accordance with anthroposophy. Its intention has, from the outset, been entirely something else. It was not intended to set up that old false contradistinction between spirit and matter, where the spirit is dealt with in abstracto, and where it is impossible for it to submerge itself in the essence and being of matter. When it is appropriate to talk of spirit, when does one speak truthfully about spirit? 
one speaks truthfully about spirit only when one is referring to spirit as the creator of matter. The worst possible way of speaking about spirit, which is today often regarded as the most beautiful way, is to refer to it as a cloud cuckoo land, never to be touched by matter. One must speak about spirit in a way which refers to it as having the strength to immerse itself directly in matter. When speaking about spiritual science, one must think of it not as being something which rises up above nature, but rather as being a fully-fledged science of nature itself. When speaking about spirit, one must think of spirit with which the human being can unite in such a way that this spirit can also mingle with social life through the mediation of the human being. A spirit about which one speaks only in the parlor, a spirit which one wants to please by being virtuous and by loving one's fellow human beings, a spirit which will do its best to abstain from immersing itself in ordinary life, such a spirit is not genuinely spiritual. A spirit of that kind is a human abstraction. To rise up toward it is not a rising up to the true spirit, but rather the ultimate outpouring of materialism. That is the reason why we had to erect a building, which in every detail is thought of as being and is seen as being, something which arises out of what lives in our anthroposophically oriented spiritual science. And linked with this, too, is the reason why, in these difficult times, there has arisen an approach to the social question, which does not want to remain enclosed within cloud cuckoo land, but would instead prefer to be a matter of real life from the outset of its activity, the very opposite of sectarianism in any form, by reading what is written in the demands of our time and doing justice to them. Of course, there is much that has not turned out so well in this building. But surely, in all honesty, one cannot nowadays expect to be immediately successful in every detail. What is important is that a beginning is undertaken, a necessary beginning in certain matters. And it seems to me that such a beginning has been made with this building. So, one day, when this building is complete, just as the nutshell fits the nut, we shall within these walls, which are not foreign to us, bring into it what flows through our spiritual movement and assorts well with every line, with every form and color. It is so essential at the present time for at least some individuals to be aware of this will, for it is this will which is all-important. Let me now return once again to a number of characteristics which have come to the fore among civilized humanity over the past three to four centuries. There are in this evolution of civilized humanity some phenomena which characterize for us the deeper foundations of what in human life just now is developing ad absurdum. It is indeed a development ad absurdum. The fact is that a large proportion of humanity, of human souls, is asleep, actually asleep. When one is somewhere where certain things are taking place, 
which are what I would call genuine counter-images, antitheses of all civilized life, when one is somewhere where these counter-images are not immediately obvious, but which nevertheless are taking place in numerous regions of today's civilized world, and which are symptomatic of what will continue to gain more and more ground, then one notices that human beings are indeed outside themselves with their souls, that they are outside the most important events of our times. They live in the everyday, without paying any attention to what is actually happening at the present time, unless they are directly affected by those processes. Admittedly, however, the actual impulses for those processes do lie in the unconscious depths, in the unconscious soul life of those people. At the foundation of the dualism I have already mentioned is another dualism, the dualism expressed, for example, in Milton's title Paradise Lost, which is a characteristic example of it. But this is merely an external symptom of something which fills the whole of modern thinking, sensitivity, feeling, and will. In more recent human consciousness, we have a sense of the antithesis between heaven and hell, or, as others describe it, between spirit and matter. Actually, the modern difference between the heaven and hell of the peasant out in his field and the matter and spirit of so-called enlightened philosophers is merely one of degrees. The thought impulses on which both are founded are identical. The contradistinction is between God and the devil, between paradise and hell. People are convinced that paradise is good and that it is frightful that human beings have been banished from it. Paradise is something which has been lost and waits to be found again. And the devil is seen as a terrible adversary who opposes all powers linked with the concept of paradise. Those who have no understanding of the contradistinctions of soul which hold sway even in the most superficial strands of our social differences, our social demands, cannot imagine the magnitude of this dualism between heaven and hell, or between that lost paradise and the earth. Speaking the truth nowadays often involves speaking in paradoxes. Indeed, to explain some things truthfully, one often sounds crazy to one's contemporaries. But as in the Pauline sense of human wisdom being foolishness before God, so might today's human wisdom, or human madness, also appear as madness to human beings of the future. Human beings have gradually dreamt their way into these contradistinctions between earth and paradise. They confuse paradise with what ought to be striven for, which is the divine in the human being. They do not realize that striving for paradise, as they understand it, would be just as bad for them as striving for the opposite. If one imagines the structure of the world in the way it is presented in Milton's Paradise Lost, then one is renaming a power which is inimical to humanity, if it is striven for in a one-sided way, as one which is divine and good. The result of this is to find oneself striving for something which is an opponent of what is good in the human being. 
Our protest against such a view will be shown in the sculpture, which is to be set up in the eastern part of our building, a nine-and-a-half-meter group sculpted in wood, which will depict as a replacement for the luciferic contradistinction between God and the devil what must be the foundation of human consciousness in the future, the trinity of the luciferic, that which belongs to the Christ, and the Aramonic. Modern civilization is so little aware of this underlying secret that one must also say the following. For certain reasons which I may yet speak about here, we have named this building the Gertianum, because it accords with Goethe's views with regard to art and knowledge. However, it must also be said that the contradistinction between the powers of good and Mephistopheles, which Goethe has set up in his Faust, embodies the same error as that put forward in Milton's Paradise Lost. Goethe shows the good powers on the one hand and the bad power as Mephistopheles on the other. In his Mephistopheles, Goethe has confused higgledy-piggledy what is luciferic on the one hand with what is aramonic on the other hand. As a result, for those who understand these things, Goethe's Mephistopheles figure represents a mixture of two spiritual individualities. We, though, must recognize that the true human being can only be depicted as an image of balance. When one endeavors on the one hand to rise up above one's head, as it were, into fantasy and ecstasy, into what is a false mysticism, into something fantastical, that is the one power. The other power is the one which seeks, as it were, to drag the human being down into materialism, into what is prosaic and dry as dust. We understand the human being rightly, only when we see him striving for balance between, on the one hand, the Aramonic and, on the other, the Luciferic. See Plate 14. The human being has the task of perpetually striving for balance between what wants to lead him upward out of himself and what wants to lead him downward out of himself. More recent spiritual civilization, however, has confused the fantastical nature of the Luciferic with that which is divine. So now descriptions of paradise are in fact descriptions of the Luciferic. And there is that dreadful confusion between what is Luciferic and what is divine because people do not realize that the most important task is to hold the balance between the two powers which seek to drag the human being in the one direction or in the other direction. What was necessary initially was to uncover this fact. If the human being is to strive toward something Christian, something which is nowadays often interpreted in rather odd ways, then he must realize that what he should be striving for is a balance between the Luciferic and the Aramonic. He has to realize that over the past three to four centuries, true knowledge about the human being has been bypassed to such an extent that little is known about this balance, so that in title Paradise Lost, the Luciferic has been renamed the Divine, to which the contrast has become the Aramonic, 
which is no longer Araman, but the modern devil, or modern materialism, or something similar. This dualism, which in reality is the duality between Lucifer and Araman, this dualism is still spooking about in modern consciousness as the contradistinction between God and the devil. So the, quote, paradise which has been lost, close quote, should really be comprehended as a description of the misnamed lost kingdom of Lucifer. One has to speak so pointedly about more recent civilization because it is necessary for human beings to reach the realization that they are on a slippery slope. This is a historical necessity, but necessities also exist so that they may be comprehended. They are on a slippery slope, and only the most radical cure can set them back on to an upward path. Very frequently these days, descriptions of the spiritual world are taken to refer to something supersensible which does not live here on our earth. In seeing something spiritual, people want to flee from what surrounds us here on our earth. But they do not realize that by fleeing into an abstract spiritual realm, what they find is not the spirit, but the region of Lucifer. A good deal of what is nowadays termed mysticism, or what is termed theosophy, denotes a search for the Luciferic region. Today's striving for the Spirit cannot involve merely knowing about the Spirit. What is appropriate for the present striving, for today's striving for the Spirit, is to have an understanding of the connection between the spiritual world and the world into which we have been born and in which we live between birth and death. Here is the question we should be asking, above all others, if we want to turn our attention toward spiritual worlds. Why are we born out of those spiritual worlds into this physical world? Well, the reason why we are born into this physical world, and tomorrow and the next day I will enter in more detail into what I am only sketching now, is because on this earth we can experience things which cannot be experienced in the spiritual worlds. In order to experience these things, one has to descend to the physical world, and thereafter one has to carry results of these experiences back up into the spiritual worlds. In order to achieve this, one has to immerse oneself in this physical world. One must immerse oneself knowingly with one's spirit in this physical world. One must immerse oneself in this physical world for the sake of the spiritual world. Fundamentally speaking, let us look at a normal human being who takes in sufficient nourishment, who sleeps the necessary number of hours, has breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and so on, who also has intellectual interests, who has indeed advanced spiritual interests and therefore becomes a member of a theosophical society, and who does what he can to find out what goes on in the spiritual world. Let us look at a person like this, someone who has, as it were, 
even in his little finger, everything which some literature or other of a theosophical nature has told him in this present age, but who otherwise leads an ordinary life. Let us look at this human being. What is the meaning of all the knowledge he acquires through his advanced spiritual interests? What it means to him is some inner pleasure of soul, some genuine luciferic enjoyment of a rather refined kind. But nothing of all this will be carried through the portal of death, nothing at all. Among people like this, and there are a good many, there are those who, despite having even in their little finger knowledge about what an astral body is, what an ether body is, and so on, have not the faintest idea what is happening when a candle burns. They have not the faintest idea what magical feats are pulled off whenever a tram runs along the street outside. They may ride in the tram, but they know nothing about it. And there is more. They may have knowledge even in their little finger about the astral body, the ether body, about karma and reincarnation, but they have not the faintest idea what goes on nowadays, for example, in a gathering of proletarian people. They are not interested. All that interests them is what the ether body looks like, what the astral body looks like. But they are not interested in the journeys made by financial capital since it became the ruling power at the beginning of the 19th century. Knowledge about the ether body, about the astral body, is of no use once such people have died. This is something which can indeed be said on the basis of a true understanding of the spiritual world. But it can only be meaningful once this spiritual knowledge becomes the instrument by means of which one is able to immerse oneself in the physical, material life and there absorb whatever cannot be absorbed in the spiritual world but must then be carried into that world. The natural sciences are today taught in our universities covering very many subjects. Experiments are carried out, research is done, and so on. And all this leads to the natural sciences with which we feed our technology, or even cure people, and do all kinds of other things. And side by side with this there are the ecclesiastical confessions. But I ask you, have you ever taken note of the content of those ordinary Sunday afternoon sermons where there is talk of the kingdom of Christ and so on? What connection is there between the natural sciences and what is said in church? On the whole, none at all. The two things carry on side by side. On the one hand, there are those who believe they have the strength with which to speak about God, about the Holy Spirit, and all kinds of other things. But even if they say they have feelings about all this, they still talk in abstract concepts, in abstract viewpoints. And the others talk about a nature in which there is no spirit. Nothing is done to form a bridge between them. And then, in more recent times, we have also developed all kinds of theosophical views, mystical views. 
These mystical views talk of many things which are far away from real life, but they do not talk about the life of human beings. Let me ask you, is it right to speak about the Creator of the universe in such a way that He appears to be a very beautiful and interesting spirit, even though He would never be capable of creating the world? The spiritual beings who are so often spoken about today would never have been capable of creating the world. If they were as we imagine them, they would not even be capable of becoming involved in our knowledge about nature or about human social life. Without being presumptuous, perhaps I may be permitted to use an example to show what I mean. In one of my more recent books titled Riddles of the Soul, I drew attention, as I have also done in my lectures, to the nonsense which is taught in one of today's sciences, physiology, namely that the human being has two types of nerve, the motor nerves which underlie the will and the sensory nerves which underlie perceptions, sensations. Well, since the invention of telegraphy, we have had an image of how telegraphy works, see plate 14. A nerve goes from the eye to the central organ and then from the central organ to one limb or another. We see something, a limb, moving. The telegraph wire passes from this organ, from the eye to the central organ, and that activates the motor nerve so that the movement is carried out. Science is appointed to teach this kind of nonsense. It has to be allowed to teach it because one speaks in the abstract about one one sees spiritually with regard to all sorts of things without developing thoughts capable of intervening positively in the way nature works. One lacks the strength to discover in what one sees spiritually some knowledge about nature itself. There is, namely, no difference between motor and sensory nerves. What we call will nerves are also sensory nerves. Their purpose is to enable us to perceive our own limbs when they are expected to make movements. The classic example of Tabas dorsalis proves the opposite of what ought to be proven. I shall not enter into this any further here, as you do not have the necessary background knowledge, but I would certainly very much like to discuss this one day with people knowledgeable about physiology and biology. All I want to point out here is that we have natural science on the one hand, and on the other hand there is much speaking and preaching about spiritual worlds which fails to touch on any real worlds surrounding us in nature. This is something we need, however. We need knowledge of the Spirit, which is at the same time strong enough to become a science of nature. But we shall only succeed in this if we take into account the will about which I wanted to speak to you today. If we had intended to set up a sectarian movement which had some dogmatic ideas regarding the divine and the spiritual and which simply had need of a building, then we could have erected or caused to be erected any kind of building. But that was not what we wanted. 
since we wanted to demonstrate, even through this external action, that it is our will to immerse ourselves in real life, we were obliged to create this building ourselves out of the will of spiritual science. The details of this building will one day show that important principles, which have been caused by those two dualisms to appear in a very false light, can be established on a healthy basis. There is one more point I would like to make today. Please look at the sequence of seven columns, which will stand on either side of our main building. See plate 15. At the top are the capitals, and at the bottom the plinths. They are not identical, for each is a further development of the previous one. In this way you may gain a view of the second capital if you enter in a living way into the forms of the first and bring to life the idea of a metamorphosis as something organic. You now have a thought which is so full of life that it is not abstract but instead follows the laws of growth. In this way you can see how the second capital develops out of the first, the third out of the second, the fourth out of the third, and so on up to the seventh. This is how we have endeavored to develop a capital in a living way, and similarly with the architraves. One out of the other in imitation of the creativity, the spiritual creativity which lives in nature itself, where one form there also emerges from the previous one. I have the feeling that now not one of the capitals could be different in any way. And something very remarkable has come to light in all this. Normally when people speak of evolution, they often say development, development, evolution, on and on. First the less complex, then the somewhat more complex, the somewhat more differentiated, and so on. The greater the perfection, the greater the complexity. But I found myself unable to put this into practice when I tried to let the seven capitals metamorphose from one to the next. When I reached the fourth, I thought I would have to make the fifth even more perfect, even more complex. But since I was not following an abstract route, as would have been the case with Haeckel or Darwin, I had to make the next form evolve once again out of the previous one, just as in nature one form arises from another in accordance with the vital forces. So with the fifth capital, although its surfaces were more artistic than those of the fourth, the overall form became simpler rather than yet more complex. And the sixth became simpler still, and the seventh even more so. In this way I discovered that evolution is not a matter of becoming ever more and more differentiated, see plate 15, but rather of a rise to a climax, followed by a downward movement to something ever more simple. This arose quite simply out of the work as it was being done. I was able to see that the principle of evolution, as it became manifest during the process of working artistically, was the same as the principle of evolution in nature. If you look at the human eye, you will see that it is certainly more perfect than the eyes of a good many animals. 
And yet the eyes of many animals are much more complicated than human eyes. They have inside them, for example, certain structures, which are no longer present in human eyes, for human eyes have, as it were, once again become less complicated than many animal eyes. If we trace the evolution of the eye, we find, at first it is primitive, simple, then it becomes ever more complicated, then it becomes simpler again, and the most perfect is not the most complex. It is simpler than the middle stage. One was constrained to do the same in creating artistically what became an inner necessity. It was not a matter of aspiring to research something. It was a matter of aspiring to make contact with the forces of vitality. And here in our building the endeavor was to imbue the forms with the same forces as those which the spirit of nature had created as the foundation of nature. There was a search for a spirit which is creative and which lives in the productions of the world rather than merely in preaching. That is what is essential. It is also the reason why a good deal was rejected with regard to the, those who wanted to decorate our building with all kinds of symbols and such like. There is not a single symbol in this building. Everywhere there are forms taken from the creative activity of the spirit in nature. This in turn reveals the initial stage of a will which will have to find a way of continuing. What is to be hoped is that people will understand this view of the matter, that they will actually understand how access to the original sources of human intentions, of human creativity, is needed in all realms by more recent humanity. All kinds of demands are made on us today. All these demands are separate from one another. They derive from the various fields of life. So what we need is something which brings everything together. This cannot come from anything which merely floats about in the surroundings of external visible existence, for everything visible is founded on something invisible. And this is what we have to grasp hold of today. Let me put it like this. We should listen carefully to what is going on today. And if we do, we will find that it is not at all absurd to notice that everything old is falling to pieces. So something must be set up to take its place. However, one needs a degree of courage in order to become acquainted with this thought. And this courage cannot be found in external life. It must be developed by an entirely inward effort. I should like to characterize this courage as follows. Today's sleeping souls would surely be delighted if someone were to turn up in one place or another with the ability to paint like Raphael or Leonardo. This would be quite understandable. But what we should have the courage to say today is that only those have the right to admire Raphael and Leonardo who know that today one cannot and one should not be creative in the way Raphael and Leonardo were in their time. Something quite prosaic can be said to illustrate this. Only someone has the right today to recognize the importance of the theorem of Pythagoras 
who realizes that this Pythagorean theorem is not waiting to be discovered now. Everything has its own time, and matters must be grasped on the concrete basis of their own time. More is required of us today than might be expected of those who attach themselves to some sort of spiritual movement. Today we need to recognize that we must face up to a renewal within the evolution of humanity. It is easy to claim that we are living in a time of transition. Every age is a time of transition. What matters is to understand what it is that is undergoing the transition. I do not want to make that trivial claim that our time is a time of transition. What I do want to say is this. People keep claiming that neither nature nor life leap forward disjointedly. People are considered wise and clever when they state sequential development, no leaping. Well, actually, nature does constantly move forward in leaps, see Drawing 14. Step by step, nature forms first the green leaf of the foliage, then remolds this into sepals, then into colorful petals, then into stamens and pistils. Nature makes leap after leap, each time shaping a form. And in wider life, there is the one turnaround after another. In the life of a human being, new circumstances arise at the change of teeth, and yet others at puberty. And if our powers of observation were less crude than they are today, one would also observe the beginning of a third phase around the twentieth year, and later yet again as life proceeds. History, too, is an organism in which such leaps take place. Yet we now pass them by unnoticed. People are entirely unaware of the significant leap which occurred around the turn of the 14th to the 15th century, or rather in the middle of the 15th century. Yet, what was initiated at that time wants to reach its fulfillment now, in the middle of our century. And it is definitely not a matter of idle fantasy, but rather a statement of the exact truth, when one points out that events which have moved human beings so greatly and which have recently reached such a culmination are tending toward something which can truly be observed to be a preparation for what is going to erupt into human evolution during the middle part of this century. These are the things of which one must be aware if one does not intend to set up arbitrary ideals for human evolution, but strives to discover spiritual science together with the creative forces of the world so that these can then also enter into life. The end of Lecture 9